This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today we're going to talk about climate change, the environment, and how the pandemic that we're still living through has affected those issues, the ways those issues play out in our world, and also the way we view them and talk about policy around those issues. And we're very fortunate to have a leading scholar and colleague and good friend, uh, Sheila Olmsted on the podcast again. I think she was with us uh, a little more than a year ago to uh, talk about some of these issues. It must have been more than a year ago, Sheila, right? Because it was before the (laughs) pandemic. So, Right. There's a compression of time makes it very hard to to tell, but I'm glad to be back. Well, we're we're delighted to have you on. Sheila Olmsted, as I'm sure many of our listeners know, is a professor at the LBJ School of Public Affairs here at the University of Texas. She's also a university fellow at Resources for the Future and a senior fellow at the Property and Environment Research Center. Center. Uh, Professor Olmsted is a charter member of the Science Advisory Board at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. And from 2016 to 2017, she served in the White House in the really important role of Senior Economist for Energy and Environment on the President's Council of Economic Advisors. Uh, Professor Olmsted has published, as far as I can tell, in every major uh, science uh, and related economics journal that, that covers environmental issues, uh, publishing in journals that reach wide academic as well as public and policy audiences. And so we really have the best person on to talk about these issues. Uh, Thank you again for joining us, Sheila. Well, thanks for that kind introduction. And uh, before we get into our discussion, of course, we have our uh, scene-setting poem from Mr. Zachary Suri. Uh, What is your poem titled today, Zachary? Fuelless. Fuelless. All right, let's hear it. Children are supposed to be curious, to be trusting. Not this stare from the bus stop at you in the SUV, idling through the streets of early morning sunrise. It rises only while it can still be seen. Not this stare from the bus stop. I too am disappointed. Now that we are adjusted to the mundane apocalypse, the everyday end of the world, I feel they have a right to know what it cost us, because it will cost them even more. I tell you, carpe diem before it all goes dark. Treasure this winter of our discontent before the summer of no end. Remember, the world will burn, etc., until it is fuelless. Wow. What is your poem about, Zachary? My poem is really about uh, uh, the ways in which we've become desensitized to uh, to the scale of of, 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 of of tragedy around us, not just in terms of the human tragedy of the pandemic, but also uh, the, the tragic impact of our own actions on the climate sure, and on the earth. Sure, sure. Well, Sheila, that seems like a good place to, to ask, I guess, the, the, the biggest question, how has this pandemic contributed to the environmental challenges and opportunities that, that we face today? Um, it's a great question and sort of opens a, a set of re- what I think are really interesting topics. I think I, I appreciate in Zachary's poem, you know, that effort of art to try and help us do better at understanding problems at such a large scale. Like if you think this week about the, you know, those tiny white flags on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., right, that effort to try and, try and 
put in human terms, right? Something that's just so, so just horrific, right? So, you know, so approaching 700,000 deaths now with the pandemic. Right. Um, and then uh, as Zachary said, you know, it's just as uh, hard, if not harder for people to, you know, kind of put in human terms, this idea that we are, um, you know, rapidly warming the planet much more rapidly than we have in the past. And that has some really, really significant implications. Um, I guess I would start by saying, you know, we've learned again that, you know, the households that are the most vulnerable, the communities that are the most vulnerable to the impacts of the pandemic are also in some cases those that are most vulnerable to the downsides of climate change. Mm. You know, that poverty constrains resilience and adaptation and vulnerability in all its forms um, constrains resilience and adaptation. Um, you know, so if you just think about, you know, what happened when Hurricane Ida come, you know, came through coastal Louisiana, again, another, you know, large uh, coastal storm that rapidly intensified as it approached the land. Um, and again, we see, right, communities that are, um, you know, that are flooded are, are communities that struggle in so many different ways. And um, again, the same thing is, it has been true of the pandemic, that if you think about the impacts on households, you know, that um, have frontline workers that can't work from home or lost their jobs or, you know, cannot take off, you know, time to get their vaccine, um, you know, these are the households that have been, um, or, or those that suffer from, you know, significant health um impacts of long-run poverty and, uh, you know, differential treatment according to race and the healthcare system and so on. So it's sort of both both of these crises highlight for us that sense that, um, you know, we're not doing as much as we could, you know, in a wealthy society, uh, you know, to to help those households that are most vulnerable. Um, so that's one, one thought that comes to mind. I think a second one is that, you know, it reminds us, both of these crises remind us just how hard um, what we would call collective action problems are, right? We have sort of another, a second set of depressing lessons in, you know, second set meaning with the pandemic, right? The climate crisis we've been struggling with for many decades um, and we need to reduce emissions or sequester emissions, right? And when uh, households and firms and cities and states and countries do that, they get some benefits from that activity, but they bear all of the costs. And similarly, you know, in the pandemic, we need to reduce transmission. Um, and so we can take steps like sheltering in place, essentially, or masking, you know, right. as a family or um, in schools or in the workplace, getting vaccines. And we can take those measures and we get some of the benefits from those measures, but we bear all of the costs. And in both cases, you know, we see people and communities and states and countries that are reluctant, um, you know, to bear those costs um, in, a, in a world in which it's possible to just, you know, do nothing, right? Sort of free right, ride right. on the actions of others. And so, you know, seeing these differing propensities for altruism and public mindedness, it just reminds us that, you know, it's, these are both really difficult situations that incentives matter, um, that we have to make it as easy as possible to, to do the right thing. And still, you know, we don't get necessarily as far as we had hoped. So I think those are two kind of important, important parallels. And I guess the last thing I would say to answer your first question is, you know, we've seen, of course, with a reduction, a big reduction in economic activity around the world related to the world shutting down, you know, starting in, around March of 2020, starting, you know, in Asia well before that, but uh, the rest of the world following pretty, pretty closely in early 2020. 
really big drops in greenhouse gas emissions. And those are detectable. And, and there's a lot of reporting about that. You know, you think about the scale of that aircraft or grounded, no one's commuting to work by car, um, you know, all kinds of energy, you know, consumption was falling at the time. And so that drop that we saw in greenhouse gas emissions, those emissions that are changing the global climate um, in 2020, it was a drop of about 10% year on year. And wow. that's the wow. largest annual drop we've seen since World War II. So, I mean, it, it was bigger than the Great recession, which dropped emissions by about, uh, you know, 6% and lower for the first time since 1990 than 1990 emissions. So <laughs> that was a big, wow. big drop. Um, so we've learned how much impact, you know, our economic activity, just our, in, you know, regular economic activity has on emissions, but all these changes were temporary. Um, and so some, I think, uh, you know, are using this as a political opportunity to say, hey, look, you know, sort of pushing an anti-climate change policy agenda, see how poorly the economy fares when we reduce emissions dramatically. And that's not a very fair comparison. It's a bit of a red herring. <laughs> right? It's very costly, obviously, to reduce emissions in that way, right, by shutting everything down. But the policy prescriptions for doing this cost-effectively are not emphatically shut everything down. And so right. that's, I think, an important point to realize, too, is that there are many less costly ways of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And so we might take as a lesson the drop in emissions as an important point, um, but not, you know, obviously the economic disruption that it caused as um, necessarily, you know, what we would see with right. uh, serious climate change right. policy. Is, is there, Sheila, a direct relationship between um, the spread of the pandemic and climate issues? Can can we see something there? Yeah, that's a great, it's a great question. There are a few direct connections. Um, so the first one I would note would be, there are some common links at the root of the two phenomena. So one of the, you know, big sources of emissions, especially in the past couple of years, um, you know, is deforestation, especially deforestation by burning, um, you know, of, of forests in the tropics and, um, and elsewhere as well. We see that with wildfires in North America and, and so on as well. And deforestation causes the movement of animals like bats, right, in the case of coronavirus, to places where they're more likely to come into contact with people. And so one cannot draw a direct line between, right, the emergence of COVID-19 as a human disease, right, as a, as a deadly human disease, and climate change per se. But, you know, you can say, look, there's this tendency for this, you know, kind of zoonotic spillover to happen where we, you know, we have deforestation and deforestation is also a really important climate change driver. So, you know, there are other common links too, but I think it's important to think about those. And then I think the second thing I would say is that we definitely also know that poor air quality increases the risk that individuals that are exposed to COVID will die from COVID-19. And so it's similar to the effects of smoking, you know, an additional stressor on people's lungs. And so the evidence that's racking up for this is from China and from uh, various parts of the United States, and it's pretty convincing. And so again, right, you know, you can think about the, the fact that we, we have to live with climate change and we have to live with global pandemics. And if we expect that to be true in both cases going forward, um, then many of the things that we, we would reduce to, you know, reduce emissions, um, you know, that are correlated with those greenhouse gas emissions, like um, particulate matter emissions and others, uh, would also um, improve people's health outcomes, right, uh, with or without the pandemic. So there are several important links, um, and it's a really good idea for us to be mindful of those. 
So looking at something like the vaccine uh, during a pandemic, uh, it's, I think, in many ways shows uh, the role that technology can play in responding to these big collective action issues. Uh, what do you think uh, that experience during the pandemic tells us about the role of technology in our solutions to climate change or, or attempts to solve climate change? Yeah, it's a great question. So what I would say is, um, you know, when you think about what the world did and, you know, just as an example, um, you know, the, the sort of U.S. government support for rapid development of vaccines. But even even without that, right, there certainly were, um, I think the Pfizer and Moderna, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I don't believe that those were um, supported by the, um, you know, by the operation, um, forgetting the name. Warp speed. Yes, thank you. Operation warp speed. It was a mix, right? Some yes. of some of the vaccines that were developed in the U.S. were supported by the U.S. government, and others were not. And that's what we see, you know, with respect to climate technologies as well. Technologies that will help um, this kind of transition that we're experiencing to cleaner energy, which is necessary to stop the, you know, the rapid warming of the planet, or at least to slow the rapid warming of the planet. And so. You know, people have asked, well, you know, if we can do that so quickly and and turn on a dime, right, and, um, you know, create these amazing inventions, the vaccines that have saved so many lives, you know, couldn't we do that um, also for the climate crisis? I mean, obviously, there are lots and lots of U.S. research dollars and research dollars from governments around the world that have gone into, you know, technologies like, you know, solar and wind energy and, um, you know, lots of other technologies that are helping with the energy transition, but nothing near the kind of scale, you know, in the short run, right, sort of treating the the situation as a crisis is what we saw with the with the vaccines. And I think it's a great reminder that, the you know, the power of governments to make those huge investments, right, that no single private firm could, could hope to make, especially in the short run, um, they can be very powerful and they can work out quite well. Do you also see a connection between the anti-science rhetoric surrounding the vaccine and a lot of the uh, sort of very ignorant reactions we've seen in the past few decades to, to climate change science? I do. I think you see some of the same individuals, especially in the political sphere, right, espousing both, right? Skepticism of, you know, hard science that's coming either from academic institutions or from scientists within the government. That's especially distressing to see, um, you know, the, you know, politicians and um, and even the, the executive branch directly attacking, you know, science from its own employees um, on a regular basis. I think that's been hard to watch and it's been hard to see, um, you know, some of the brain drain that we've seen in some of the agencies on, uh, you know, that have, have worried about climate. But, you know, honestly, we see some of that same debate and discussion, you know, between the FDA and the CDC, right, and the White House um, over, you know, issues having to do with the pandemic. There's a real strain, you know, I think maybe Jeremy's the better expert on this, probably always historically has been some of this in the United States. But it's really grown, um, you know, and been um, pretty destructive in the past several years. This tendency of people to be, you know, skeptical of science and skeptical of, um, you know, of scientific expertise. And it, and it slows us down, right? It right. slows us down in getting vaccines into arms. It slows us down in doing something about, you know, uh, the, the greenhouse gas emissions that are changing the climate. Um, you know, eventually, often, <laughs> the U.S. does the right thing. But, uh, you know, it's just that, that you know, whether you know what what the costs will be of um, of slower being slower to action um, due in part to this um, skepticism of the science it's it's hard to say well and it's hard to avoid I think Sheila the 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 obvious conclusion that people have died 
uh, mm-hmm. b- because of our slow reaction or a mixed reaction, both on the climate and particularly on the pandemic issue, right? Yes, I think that's fair to say. I think with climate, you know, the best links in terms of kind of most well-established empirical links in the literature are between, um, you know, increasing heat and this, you know, increasing yes. frequency and intensity yes. of heat waves and human mortality and morbidity, as well as, you know, things like coastal storms. It's a little harder to say in those cases, because in the case of storms, they're pretty infrequent events. And so the best we can do is um, what scientists would call attribution science that tells us you know, how much more likely it is that we would have a, you know, a Hurricane Harvey or Hurricane Ida than it might have been um, without anthropogenically induced climate change. And those numbers look awfully convincing to me. But again, you know, we can't make a, that direct link and say, right, this storm is because, you know, happened because the climate is changing. Right, right. Um, but, in, but for sure, right, kind of given what we know um, to the extent that we can attribute some of that increased intensity and frequency and the kind of rapidity with which, which the storms increase in strength before they meet um, houses and, and buildings um, to climate change, that has been responsible, you know, for, um, you know, some pretty significant um, human costs. I mean, the Texas winter storm is another classic example of that. Right. That's just what I was thinking of. Uh, all, mm-hmm. all of those who died around the state of Texas because they lost power. Right. And they're, again, sort of similar to the pandemic in the sense that it's not just, right, it's not just that people froze to death in their homes, right, but or died from carbon monoxide exposure in their homes, but that they couldn't get to the hospital, right? Similarly exactly. with the pandemic, exactly. right, we have, you know, long waits to get an ICU bed. So it's, you know, it's not just COVID that kills people. It's the, um, you know, the lack of access to right. rapid and, and high quality medical care. So I, I think that's a good point to transition, Sheila. You're you're so uh, closely in touch with the policy community, both uh, those in government and, and many of those outside of government. How has the pandemic changed the way policy experts and policymakers think about some of these issues? You know, if I were to say one thing, I, I got to say it's a little bit of a downer. And you know me, I'm an optimist, so I don't like to focus <laughs> on the negative. But I think the pandemic has further polarized the political setting in the U.S. kind of federal, right, um, you know, in the Congress for sure, um, and possibly, you know, in other settings as well. And so at a moment when, you know, at the beginning of the Biden administration, there are some pretty ambitious targets on the table for reducing U.S. greenhouse gas emissions and doing something serious about the climate, we are also at a moment where it's extraordinarily difficult um, to get any of that done. And I think we're seeing that um, with respect to the infrastructure bill that the Congress is currently considering and recognizing that maybe the climate pieces of that bill are among the most vulnerable pieces, um, right? If we're to get to some agreement right. um, in which that passes through, um, it may be, you know, without some of its major climate provisions. And that would really be difficult to accept because it is the main the sort of centerpiece of right of the the current Biden administration approach. I know they've got some other things up their sleeve, and right things can change and um, and so on. But with a, an election coming up in twenty twenty two, you know, if the prospects for this bill don't start looking better, um, you know, you have to wonder how much concrete territory they're going to cover on climate change in this first term. And why do you think this has become more politicized? Is it simply because there is a uh, a set of political actors, particularly from one party, who have tried to politicize these issues? Or are there other factors as well? Is there uncertainty about some of the things we thought we knew that that, that has affected this debate? I think 
that if anything on the second point, right, what we know and what even, you know, quite conservative politicians are willing to accept in terms of the basic science, I actually sense a subtle shift in that. And and I, from what I am reading, um, you know, I think people are actually more willing to talk mm. about climate mm. change and the fact that some of the, many of the phenomenon uh, that, that we're experiencing, um, you know, are linked to it. Even, you know, folks from, um, you know, heavy fossil fuel producing states. I'm not sure about the Texas delegation, but I do know, for example, that Senator Joe Manchin, right, when you're kind of reading what he's saying, it no longer seems to be about um, just outright denial. But there, right, there is a sense that people, um, you know, they, they're extraordinarily cognizant of the costs of serious climate policy and not really clear on the benefits. Um, and they're also highly aware of the distribution of those you know, somewhat lopsided costs and benefits and which states are, are gonna lose and, and which states stand to gain from serious climate policy. And so um, that's, I think, where we are. And I think the other piece of it is you know, an unwillingness to kind of hand a democratic administration a victory of any kind, right, right. right? So there's some, even though there may be a better understanding, better agreement on, you know, on the basic science and what the concerns are, I think for those two reasons, we're just not seeing the progress that we need mm -hmm. to see. Mm -hmm. and, and what's your sense about public opinion in general? It seems to me, uh, but I'm not an expert, it seems to me that public opinion is every year more and more concerned about climate change and more committed in one way or another to addressing the issue. Obviously, the devil's in the details, but is that a, is that a fair reading of where you think the public's going? I think going? that's a fair reading. Again, I think we're probably reading some of the same things. I mean, I, I see that too, and you know, it certainly has been noted in the literature, kind of, you know, academic research has suggested polling, right, suggests that, that. I think it's one of several important examples of, you know, the failure of the U.S. political system to deliver on, you know, issues that are seem to be, you know, increasingly important to the people that the system governs. And it's hard to say why that is. Again, I'm sure you've had lots of conversations on this show about gerrymandering and, right, the, you know, all kinds of, you know, right. reasons why the, um, you know, elected officials aren't necessarily catering to their median voter anymore, right? Um, but I, I just, I think we got to put this right now, right, on um, in the ledger of, of issues that um, have not you know, where the, the action is not um, necessarily, it doesn't agree very well with, I think, where people stand. Right. It, it would fall under that category, I think, that, that we've talked about quite a bit on, on the podcast, which is the failure of democracy in a particular area, mm -hmm. where, where it can be fixed. This is not a an inevitable failure of democracy, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. it does seem in the institutional matrix that we're in now that, that this is where we are. I think that's right. And I don't think you can lay it at the feet. I don't want people to come away from the conversation with this impression that I think we can lay this in entirely at the feet of Republican politicians. I think Democratic politicians have also been kind of loathe to give in on some favorite um, you know, sort of favorite items that aren't necessarily going to work for finding areas of compromise. So mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. You know, comprehensive carbon pricing is not really something that's been seriously considered, even though right at the beginning of the administration, there might have been some appetite for that among, um, you know, among some of the conservative, especially the sort of the, the Republicans who have signed on to, you know, these climate groups within the Congress and so on. Um, I think we're, unfortunately, as we approach 2022 now, you know, when that gets closer, it gets harder to do things that might have been accomplished, um, you know, in the first, you know, year or two. Um, but I, I do worry, right, that, um, that Democrats, you know, kind of 
hanging on to their favorite policies and not necessarily kind of moving towards something that might be more of a compromise have contributed to the problem as sure, well. Sure. That's the paradox of polarization that both mm-hmm. sides end up end up playing the game they're criticizing. Right. right. Uh, that doesn't mean they're playing it equally, by the way. There's there's an asymmetry certainly, yes, but yes. but nonetheless, I, I think your point is so well taken. So so Sheila, where do we go from here? What what do um, experts like yourself who also have a very strong uh, dog in the game, right? Who really, really want to see certain solutions pursued. Where do we go from here? How, how can we see this history that we've discussed contributing to some progress in the future? I think there are a couple of areas that, that one could focus on. I mean, one is, you know, spending serious money to address this first issue that we talked about, which is, hey, there are a lot of households and firms and you know buildings and so on in the United States that are really vulnerable to you know not just coastal storms but inevitably inundation, right, permanent flooding and you know heat waves and these other things that you know fires, things that we're seeing like that. And I think you know states and the federal government are probably going to make a lot more progress talking about how we can help with adaptation and resilience. Um, You know, because for better or for worse, that means, you know, spending a lot of money and benefiting communities that are struggling than, you know, in reducing emissions. I think that's just a harder conversation. And I think the country kind of politically, especially on the conservative side, might be more ready to talk about, hey, you know, what do we do, uh, you know, for relief and what do we do to, um, you know, help bolster these communities that are so vulnerable than um, uh, than they are about reducing emissions. So that's one area where I, I think we could see some progress. Um, and the other is something that you and I have talked about before. I think we did, a, I did a, a, a short talk to some diplomats and training for a group that you were working with here in Austin. And that is recognizing that there are certain things we can do that that do reduce emissions that also improve health and welfare of local populations. You know, things like reducing, you know, other, you know, particulate matter emissions and other emissions that are directly causing, you know, asthma and premature mortality and so on in the communities um, where these emissions occur. And a lot of the things that firms and others would do to reduce those emissions are also things that would reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Not all of them by any means, but, you know, moving more rapidly from coal to gas or coal to, you know, renewables and electricity generation is a good example of that. So I think maybe focusing on those local benefits, which are just, I mean, right, right from that collective action perspective, just easier to, um, right. you know, to, to talk about and easier to get people behind doing something about, um, that could be really helpful too. Um, so those are my my two thoughts. And, on that. and I remember that talk, which was a wonderful talk you gave, and the diplomats I think took a lot away from it. Uh, they were struck though that that you didn't emphasize things like the big international agreements. Yeah, I think I you know it's this is not to say I think that that process run through the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change has been incredibly valuable for many many reasons. But when I think about whether that process moving forward and achieving its, you know, its many different goals has been helpful to the U.S. conversation on climate change policy. I'm not so sure about that. And again, in the current political climate with skepticism about global engagement generally, right, um, I think it can be, you know, it's it's not as um, powerful as it has been in, in many other countries. That makes sense. Um, final question, Sheila. Um, do you do you have optimism, and what what makes you most optimistic? I'm optimistic that we'll do something 
to avoid, you know, some of the most serious, uh, you know, implications of climate change. I just think, again, with this movement of public opinion and and so on, that we can't be stuck in this trap of, right, uh, you know, a frozen political apparatus forever, and that this will be one of the many issues that helps us bust through that, um, you know, that constraint. You know, what makes me optimistic, again, I just, you know, teaching our students, <laughs> right? Young people are impatient. They are tired of the mess that we've made <laughs> of this world, right? And I just don't see that that is sustainable for any, you know, reasonable period of time. They're revolutionaries, right? Our um, young people are in my classes and and so on. So I feel optimistic that the pressure for change will just get greater and greater, um, you know, and, and I feel sad that we've left it to you know, future generations to solve the problem, but that is what we've done. Um, and so, and, but I think they're up to it. I do. That's the optimistic part is I think they're up to it. Uh, you've articulated so well one of our key themes week in and week out, which is how change comes uh, with generational change as well mm -hmm. as uh, policy change. Zachary, uh, does that resonate with you? Do you share Sheila's optimism about your generation? Are you, are, are you going to correct the mistakes of those before <laughs> you? You know, I, I just think that, 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 the, this climate science has been so embedded, um, at least into 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 everyday classroom interactions, um, and and the learning of young people like myself that that I really do think that we're we're going to be the generation that 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 makes a difference, uh, and 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 I hope I hope soon because because it, it needs so to too. happen it needs to happen soon. Agreed. Well, Zachary and I have been talking about this. I, I hope uh, our listeners, especially after our discussion of the German elections a couple of weeks ago, have been paying attention. Not only following Sheila's discussion, have young people uh, made a difference in, in Germany already in a stronger Green Party? Uh, they also are pushing for reducing the voting age to 16. Wow. And, and, and <laughs> this might be one of those issues where that would really help, right, Sheila? Yeah, I think that it would. <laughs> I think that it would. I don't think that's going to happen in the United States, Jeremy, but I... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not 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 immediately. But but uh, who would have thought in 1959 that we'd lower the voting age to 18? Right. That's so. true. That's an excellent point. That's so. true. Sheila, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us uh, and and also giving us some optimism. Uh, yeah. Really wonderful talking to you. Thank you. It was fun. Thanks for having me on. And Zachary, thank you for your poem and your insights as always. And thank you most of all to uh, our listeners for joining this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time. <laughs>